Welcome to the Faith Pampa Podcast, the podcast ministry of Faith Bible Church in Pampa, Texas. Each week, our pastors share a message from the scriptures to glorify God through the equipping, encouraging, and building up of the fellowship to grow in Christ and make disciples. This week, Pastor Dylan Hill will share a message from Joshua 1, 1 through 9, where we will see that the holy and faithful God we serve calls on his people to trust in his faithfulness in order to obey and represent his kingdom. Well, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, we're actually going to get into the text of Joshua today in verses 1 through 9. We're going to be looking at the commission of Joshua to lead the nation of Israel. Uh, Moses already commissioned Joshua back in Deuteronomy, but this is actually the Lord speaking to Joshua, commissioning him. Last two weeks, we've been looking at an introduction to the book of Joshua. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But for right now, if you'll turn to Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we'll begin. After the death of Moses, the slave of Yahweh, Yahweh said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my slave, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea going, excuse me, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be confident and strong, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be confident and very strong, being careful to do all that which Moses, my slave, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be confident and strong. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray and seek the Lord's guidance before we enter into a time of studying His Word. Lord, we give you thanks for this, your word, that you have faithfully delivered by the hand of your prophet and preserved for us to this day, that we might study the word of our God and know the God of the word. And so we pray during this time that you would deal bountifully with your slaves, that we may live and keep your word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your instruction. Guide us into the truth, that we may see clearly and respond in faithful obedience, being conformed to the image of God in Christ to make your glory and salvation known to the lost and dying. Lord, I pray that during this time I would not speak from the empty arrogance of knowledge, but that you would speak to your people through your word, by your spirit testifying in their hearts, that they may be equipped, encouraged, built up to make you known. And that above all else, your name would be honored and glorified in our time. We pray this all in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen. Well, if you've ever had the opportunity to teach a child to swim, you know this can be a very unnerving experience for them, right? They're just getting used to walking on solid ground, getting used to walking in general, and then you step them up to this abyss of water. 
this unstable ground. They don't know how deep it is. There's nothing to hang on to. It's very unnatural. Humans are land creatures, not water creatures. And so they're very, very nervous, if not outright terrified by what lies before them. And it doesn't seem to matter how many floaties you give them, how many toys and tools you give them. They just can't seem to get over the terror that lies before them. And one of the things they so often forget is that there is an adult right there with them. An adult who will faithfully be present to make sure that they are safe. To care for them as they're learning to do this difficult, unnatural thing, right? That there's an adult here that's already learned to swim, who already knows all the things about swimming, who knows how to teach them to do it. And the child just forgets that. Because all they see before them is the enormity and terror of what lies before them. The reality is that our walk with the Lord, particularly in the context of His call for us to go and make His kingdom known, can feel the same way. It's very unnatural. People don't just go out and talk about Jesus and go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not something that people are normally bent to do. It's not natural to our world, right? People generally oppose it. They don't want to talk about religion. They don't want to talk about these sort of things in our context. And so we can oftentimes get afraid of how they're going to respond, that we might fail, that we might not have the right words, that they might oppose us, that they might abandon friendships with us. We see all these different fears begin to stack up. Fear that we might fail to represent Christ well in our own obedience. But we need to see that despite our fears to reach the lost and dying, or our fears of failing to represent Christ, despite all this, Christ's faithfulness and obedience have already made it possible for us to be confident and strong in doing so without fear or dismay in what He's called us to do. And so what we're going to see today is this, that the holy and faithful God we serve calls on His people to trust in His faithfulness in order to obey and represent His kingdom. And if this is the case, then we'll see that we must, first of all, trust in the Lord's faithfulness, and secondly, we must trust by obeying His call to represent Him and His kingdom. Now, again, in the last couple of weeks, we've been doing an introduction to the book of Joshua. You can see, again, this poster out in the hallway as you go by. If you want to look at it a little closer, I will zoom in on this because I can't see very well either. It is very small, Um, and I'm sorry I can't get it much bigger than this as far as the introduction goes. But our first week of introduction, this was two weeks ago, we looked at the context for the book of Joshua, that Moses had led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. But because of their disobedience, they were disciplined forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire first generation died off. And even Moses himself was not allowed to enter into the land because as he approached a rock a second time to bring forth water for the people, instead of calling to the rock to bring forth water as the Lord told him to, he struck it twice, disobeying the Lord, and he himself was not allowed to enter in the land. And so Moses dies in the wilderness, having commissioned Joshua to lead the people into the land, And then as we'll see in our text today, the Lord himself would commission Joshua and speak to him as he did so. And so our context is we're going into the land to take possession of it. This land that had been promised to the patriarch Abraham hundreds of years before, the Lord was fulfilling his promise to bring them into the land. But as we looked at last week, part of the context for that possession is also Israel serving as an instrument of justice upon the Canaanites. The Canaanites had lived in 
rampant and wicked sin for hundreds of years. The Lord had given them space to turn from their ways, but they had not. And now Israel was not only coming in to take possession of a land that they had been promised hundreds of years before, but they were also coming in to be instruments of God's justice upon these wicked nations that lived in the land. So we looked at that last week. This week we're actually going to get into the text of Joshua. We're going to be in this first five-chapter section of Joshua where Joshua is taking up leadership over Israel, helping them to prepare for what is to come. And so we're going to look at that here today in chapter 1. Now one thing I want to say as we get into the book of Joshua, and this is important for any Old Testament text from the Hebrew Scriptures, we need to understand that they were real people who lived at real times, in real places, and had real experiences with our God. But just as Jesus told the men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, all these things were supposed to point forward to Jesus and his kingdom. All these things were to point forward to what he had accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection for the glory of God. And so if we go to an Old Testament text and fail to understand how that points forward to Jesus and his kingdom for the glory of God, then we've only done half the work. And so we are going to look at the events that actually transpired with Joshua here as we go through the book of Joshua. What we also need to do is constantly point ourselves forward to how this looks to Jesus and his kingdom. Joshua is going to fail. We're going to see that. Jesus becomes the greater Joshua who doesn't fail. The people of Israel often stand in as, as a representative of the people of God in general in these narratives, pointing forward to the people of God, how they should and should not, unfortunately, oftentimes, respond in obedience to the Lord. And then the land imagery often points forward to the very kingdom of God itself, particularly its inhabitants and particularly the composition of that kingdom. And so we have to take time as we're going through this text to look not only at the events that did, in fact, take place, but how they ultimately point forward to Jesus and his kingdom. And so as we go to the text today, the first thing we're going to look at is what it looks like for us to trust in the Lord's faithfulness. So we pick up here in Joshua chapter 1 with this first statement. This context is that Moses has died. Moses, the slave of Yahweh. Now, in the ancient world, if you were the slave of a king, that slave often had a higher status than most people in the kingdom. He still had a very, very high status. And so for someone to be the slave of Yahweh, the highest of the highs, means that Moses has a position over pretty much everybody. He has the highest status position you can have here as the slave of Yahweh. But now he has died, and Joshua, who had served as his assistant for many years, was to take over leadership. And so Joshua is commanded in verse 2 to arise and go over the Jordan with all this people to the land that he had been promised. Now, the Jordan River Valley is not the most treacherous land ever. At the time Joshua is going to be leading the people, we're going to see later on in the text, that it is at flood stage, so it is pretty broad at this point, uh, relatively speaking. And if you were going to cross it with a buddy of yours for a day trip, go back and forth, it may not be that big a deal. But when you're talking about moving over a million people, men, women, children, livestock, possessions, food, the elderly, all these different things that you're trying to move across this river, this is no small task. This is an enormous 
task. And if Joshua was to do it with any sense of confidence that it was going to get accomplished, he had to look to the Lord and trust that the Lord would be there to make this happen. But this is what's interesting, implicit in this last statement, is they're going into the land that he is giving to them. The Lord is making a promise that they're going to cross this river, and they're going to get into the land that he had promised to give to them. So again, this is one of these first implicit reassurances that the Lord gives to him. Now, when we get to verses 3 and 4, we actually get a picture of the extent of the land, that everywhere they went, that would be their land given to them. Now, it's not that they could just choose to go wherever they want and the Lord would give them that land. The point was that as he, in his providence, in his sovereign guidance, guided them through the land, everywhere that he would guide them would be land that they would be given. But then in verse 4, he gives them sort of the extent of the land. Now, Israel is fairly familiar with the southern portions of the land. They've been around that area Uh, Those areas would also be part of the inheritance, but a lot of what he mentions here is northern lands that they had not yet explored, that they were unaware of because they hadn't been there. And so we're going to see a description of these particular territories. Now, as with the book of Joshua, frequently we're going to be in a lot of maps. We're going to be looking at a lot of maps because we're familiar with our own geography. We're not as familiar with the geography of this particular area. So Israel at this point is camped on the northeastern end of of the Dead Sea, and they're actually going to cross the Red uh, cross. I'm sorry, not the Red Sea, the Dead Sea. Um, they're going to cross the River Jordan here, just north of the Dead Sea. So the first place the Lord mentions here is the wilderness. Now this territory is a little bit of wilderness, but there's also some good land here, and we're actually going to see that there are going to be tribes that are going to inherit even this part of the land as part of their possession. And so he says, look, this place you're in already, this territory here, this is going to be part of your inheritance as well. Then he says this Lebanon. Now, Lebanon is the hill country, forested area in the north. And this uh, particular territory was further up from them. Again, territory they take, but all the way to the Euphrates River. Now, we often think of the Euphrates down in southeastern Iraq, modern-day Iraq, but it actually starts much further to the northwest. And this would go, their kingdom would extend all the way to that river. Now, This does not happen until the days of King David and King Solomon, but eventually they would get there. Then he says they would take the land of the Hittites. Now, there is some confusion as to who these people are. The Hittites are mentioned in Scripture. And when archaeologists discovered this kingdom that they eventually called the Hittites, they were doing so most likely, from what I can tell, because they knew that there was a group called the Hittites that had land in the north of where Israel was supposed to take possession. And the reality is the kingdom that they found had land that extended down that far. The problem is that that particular kingdom that they labeled as the Hittites, because they thought that's who the Bible was talking about, they actually called themselves the Neshians, because they were from the city of Nesh. And so there was some confusion that because the Neshian kingdom had extended all the way down into this northern territory, that when the Bible talked about the Hittites, it meant this particular kingdom. But the reality is it's more likely that the Hittites were just another Canaanite tribe that happened to occupy territory in the far northern reaches of where Israel was actually supposed to take possession of the land. In fact, the Egyptians called this the land of the Hatti. In other words, the Hittite tribes. And then, of course, the western border would be the Mediterranean Sea itself. This would be the extent of the land that they would take. But then we come to verse 5. And we get this reassuring statement. Two important points here. The Lord says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
I will not leave you or forsake you. The first assurance. This figure of speech that no one would be able to stand before him. Now, this does not mean that Joshua would not face opposition. He would. But the reality is he's being told that opposition would ultimately fail. Opposition he would face from the inhabitants of the land? Absolutely. He would also potentially face opposition within his own ranks, within the nation of Israel. But ultimately the Lord is promising him because of the Lord's faithfulness, because of the Lord's work, all this opposition would eventually be for naught. It would not be successful. But then he says this, this other reassurance. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua was being reassured that the Lord would be with him throughout this experience, throughout the rest of his life. As the people were coming into the land, he was leading them. He was doing his best to be obedient, to trust in the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord would continue to be with him and would never abandon him. And what great reassurance that the God of all creation, the covenant God that Joshua saw lead his people through the Red Sea, saw him do magnificent and awesome things, even in the wilderness, that that God would be with him as he went forward to lead this nation. What an awesome reassurance. And so Joshua was ultimately being called here in this first part of this commission to trust in the Lord's faithfulness to work through him. But again, as we point forward, as we point forward to Jesus and his kingdom, we see this, that just as Joshua was to trust in the Lord's faithfulness to lead his people into the kingdom, so Jesus looked to the Father to accomplish the securing of his kingdom. We look at Psalm chapter 2. We see um, a psalm here that is the Lord speaking to the Son, the Father speaking to the Son. It's what we call a messianic psalm, a psalm that points forward to Christ himself. And we come to verses 7 and 9 and we hear this. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a reassurance from the Father speaking to the Son that He would receive His kingdom, that He would reign over His kingdom forever. This is a comment being made of faithfulness of the Father to the Son that they would accomplish the work of the kingdom and that He would be king over that kingdom but we see this favor, not only here in Psalm 2, but we see it in other places in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, we hear the Father say, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, this word of favor upon the Son, so that He would be able to accomplish what He was sent to do. Matthew chapter 17, at the transfiguration, when Jesus stands before the disciples, changed and formed into this bright, glorious appearance, and the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Again, this word of favor upon the Son that He might do what He was sent to do for the kingdom of God. That He would come and show the love of God to His people. That He would come and show the way of God to His people that they might obey. That He would die for His people. That in His death, burial, and resurrection they might have life eternal in His kingdom. We see the favor and faithfulness of the Father to the Son so that the Son might accomplish exactly what He was sent to do. Tim Hansel, a writer of yesterday year, uh, talks about a story one time of him 
going on a trek with his son. If I remember the story right, his son gets up as they're walking on sort of this high rock area, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, without any warning, his son jumps onto his father, and they they collapse to the ground. And after his father catches his breath, stand up, brush themselves off, Tim looks at his son and he says, can you give me one good reason why you did that? And his son looks at him and says something very striking. He says, because you're dad. And what he appears to have meant by that was this. Because you're my father, because you are who you are, by your very nature, being my dad, I knew you would be there to catch me. I knew that you would be there to make sure I was safe. I knew because of who you are that you'd be there for me. And the reality is, that is the same with our Heavenly Father. Because of who He is, because He is by nature faithful and righteous, we can trust that He will be with us. But in the context of Joshua and our discussion today, it's within a very specific realm. We go to Matthew chapter 28. And we read this, Jesus came and said to them, to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the important statement to catch here is yes, he's calling us to go and make disciples, to teach them to observe all that he had commanded. But notice he, all authority in heaven and earth had been given to Jesus by the Father. And he tells his disciples he will be with them always to the end of the age. What's the context? He will be with them as they go and make disciples. Here's the reality, Faith Bible Church. We've been through a lot in the last three and a half years. Big change. Lots of changes have happened. Lots of transitions have happened. We've gone through a pandemic. We've gone through a building sale. We've had people come. We've had people go. And now we've come to this new location physically, this new building, this new place in our community, in this city. And through all of this, the Lord has been preparing us for work to go and make His kingdom known, to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. He has brought us here to do that work. Now, that doesn't just mean that we're just working here and around in this local area. It also means within the context of our relationships, our family, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors, but also here in unfamiliar territory where we're going to have to start from scratch with relationships, reaching out to people. And in the context of all of these relationships, we're going to be sacrificially serving them in loving kindness to the point where we can start having good conversations, start asking questions, have spiritual conversations to the point where sharing the gospel is natural and easy within that context. But in the midst of all of that, we can start to look at the task that has been set before us after all we've been through as a fellowship, And we can say, we're overwhelmed. This task is enormous. How can we ever do what we've been called to do? But the reality is we need to remember two things in the context of our discussion at this point. First of all, we can go out and we can be terrified that we're going to be opposed. And in some cases we may be. 
And that drudges up fear that people will angrily oppose us. They'll reject us. We might lose friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members over this. Or worse yet, they might just be apathetic and walk away. And we can feel fearful, dejected by all this. But we need to remember two things at this point. First of all, none will oppose. Just as the Father promised Jesus that none would be able to oppose Him in establishing His kingdom and reign, so none will oppose as we go out to be instruments of that work. Now, that does not mean we will not face opposition, but what it does mean is when we face opposition, one of two things is going to happen. Either the Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of the people we engage with who do oppose us and will change their hearts so that they, by His grace, will turn to Him in faith and repentance and enter eternally into His kingdom, or one day they will face judgment. Either way, they will not be able to oppose the work of God. And so we need not fear. And then in the midst of that, we need to remember, not only will we ultimately not, well, no, excuse me, not only will no opposition succeed, but ultimately we have to remember that He is present with us. The Father was faithful to be present with the Son so that the Son could be faithful to accomplish what He was sent to do. And because we are in the Son, we can trust that He will be faithfully with us. And we can trust that no matter what we're going to go face in this community, as we go out to make Him known, we can trust that He will be with us. He will not abandon us, and He will not forsake us as we go. So again, we have to trust in the Lord's faithfulness as we go to do what He has called us to do to make Him known. All right, any questions at this point or any comments? All right. So, as we said, we're going to trust in the Lord's faithfulness as we go in mission to accomplish what He has called us to do. But we're also going to look to Christ's obedience. We're going to trust in Christ's obedience that we might obey and make His kingdom known. One thing I want to say as we get into this next section is we have to remember the purpose of all of this. The purpose of going into the land. The purpose is to represent the Lord. Israel is going into land not just because they've been promised to be given this gift of the land, not just because they were being used as instruments of justice upon the Canaanites, not just because the Lord just wanted to give them this possession just because. It was to accomplish a greater purpose. And we see this in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where the Lord says that they are to be a kingdom of priests. And as we've looked at before, what this means is they are to represent the Lord to the nations as a whole kingdom of They were to represent the Lord to the nations. The nations were supposed to look upon Israel and say, those people are different. Their God must be different. What is that all about? And then Israel would call them, come and see. And they would come and see, and Lord willing, they would repent and turn to Him in faith. And He would receive glory, and they would enter into His kingdom. That is the purpose of doing all they are called to do. And we're going to see how that plays out in this next section. So keep this in mind as we go through that the greater mission is to glorify God and make Him known. So Joshua's given this command multiple times in this next section. 
Be confident and strong. Now, the difficulty with these two words in Hebrew is they are almost identical. They are two separate words, very different looking words, but they mean almost exactly the same thing. Your translation might say, be strong and courageous. This is not necessarily a bad translation, but I want to try to give a little more uh, sharper nuance to what these words actually mean. So the first word has this idea of confidence. But confidence in what? Well, confidence in what he has told him, that the Lord would be faithful, the Lord would be with him, that none would oppose him. And we're going to see in a little bit, confidence in what God has said is good is in fact good. What God has said is right is in fact right. And that God will do what he has said he will do. That Joshua can place his full confidence in these things. Now the word for strong here, uh, I know I put strong here and that's a pretty generic word. Uh, The best way I have to describe it in our sort of West Texas context is the idea of grit. The idea of this sort of um, strength from within, this resolve to get things done. Okay, that's the kind of strength he's being called to have. And then specifically, he's told that the reason why he needs to be confident and strong in this way is because he's going to cause these people to inherit the land that he swore, that the Lord swore, to their fathers to give them. Now, what's interesting here is that you there for Joshua, pointing out Joshua, is in the emphatic position. What the Lord is saying to Joshua here is pointing out specifically, it's you, Joshua. You specifically. You're the one. You're the one. Pay attention, Joshua. You're the one who's going to do this. You, you, you. That's how the you is being used here. He wants them to understand that it's Joshua. He needs to pay attention to be confident and strong so that he can lead them into the land as he's supposed to, as their leader. Again, because that's what the Lord has promised to their fathers. But then when we get to 7 and 8 here, we see the means by which he is to be confident and strong. The way he's supposed to go about building up this confidence and strength. He says only be confident and very strong. How? Being careful to do all that which Moses, my slave, commanded you. In other words, he is to gain confidence and strength by being obedient to the instructions of the Lord spoken through the prophet Moses. Now at this point, the only book of, of God that Joshua has is Genesis through Deuteronomy. But he is to look to that text, be obedient to it, and that's how he is to gain confidence and strength. He says, do not turn away from it to the right hand or to the left. Don't turn to what is right in your own eyes. Don't turn to what's right in the eyes of the people. Don't turn to whatever you can come up with other than the Word of God. Focus on it. Keep your mind and eyes directly upon that Word, the instructions given by the Lord. And ultimately, the result is that he may have good success wherever he goes. Now, this is in the context of covenant blessings. This isn't the same context we're in. The idea here was this. In the old covenant established with Moses and the people of Israel, as the nation as a whole obeyed, they would receive blessings from the Lord as they took possession of the land. If they uh, disobeyed as a whole people, they would be cursed and removed from the land. Joshua is being called upon here to be an example to the people of what that obedience should look like so that they will see success, so that they will accomplish what they're sent to do. Now, be careful here because when the Old Covenant system talks about obedience resulting in blessing and disobedience resulting in cursing, it is at a a communal level, a, a community level, a national level. As the people as a whole do this, this will be the result. Jesus actually... 
has a problem, as we see in the Gospels, when leaders try to apply this principle to individuals and individual obedience working this way. We're going to see that that's not exactly how it works in God's economy. But in this particular case, in this context, Joshua is being called to be an example to the people to show them obedience that leads to blessing and success. So how's he supposed to go about doing this? Well, it says the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. In other words, he is to continually speak about the word, to tell it to people, to talk about it with people, to discuss it with the leaders, discuss it with his family, talk about it with his friends. All of this is supposed to continually be coming from his mouth as he speaks it with his people. It says you shall meditate on it day and night. I love the word translated meditate here. Uh, the word meditate is used to translate a lot of different words in Hebrew, but in this particular case, it is the word Hagah. And Hagah means to mutter or mumble. In other words, the idea here is that he is looking at the text and he is under his breath, although it is vocalized, speaking the text as he's reading it. Now, for those of you who are speed readers, you know that sometimes you get through a paragraph and you realize I haven't been paying attention to a word that I've been reading because my mind's been elsewhere, right? Well, the idea here with muttering is to engage your whole mind with what's being said. We don't speed read through the Scriptures. I know you want to get through your year-long reading as quickly as possible. That's a bad habit, right? The idea is to slow down, to speak it so that everything about your mind and body is engaged with the reading of the Word of God. And the idea was that if he did this, he would be careful to do all according to all that is written in it. He would know the Word so well so that he could actually do it. He would know what's right in the eyes of the Lord. He would know what obedience looks like and ultimately know what God is like so that he could worship him properly. And then again, he comes back to this covenant blessing for you will make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. Again, being an example to the people about what obedience looks like leading to blessing. And then we come to this last statement. This emphatic rhetorical question that the Lord asks, have I not commanded you? This is a call for Joshua to pay attention again very carefully to the command that's being given to him to be confident and strong. But then the Lord expands that out. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. If the Lord was with him, he could do this. And so what does the Lord say at the end? For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. Because Yahweh is faithful to Joshua, Joshua could be assured that he had no reason to be afraid, no reason to be dismayed, no reason to be dejected or fearful at all. Because Yahweh was with him in everything he was doing. He would be present and faithful with Joshua. A promise made to Joshua, again, by a God whose faithfulness and righteousness Joshua had seen at play in the nation for decades. And so this is an incredible promise made to Joshua here in this text. But again, I want to call your attention back to this. The purpose of all of this is so that the people could enter into the land, take possession of it, do what they were called to do in obedience, and be a testimony to the glory of God to the nations as a kingdom of priests. We cannot lose sight of that purpose. Otherwise, we just start thinking it's blessings for blessings' sake. That's not what it's for. It is so that they represent the Lord to the nations. So Joshua is called upon to obey the Lord, to be an example to the nation of what it means to obey and receive blessing and to lead this people well. And so we've looked at trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. Now we're going to talk about trusting in Christ's obedience. 
So just as Joshua was to obey to succeed, so Jesus obeyed in all things and succeeded. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We read these words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now this doesn't just mean that Jesus came to fulfill all the prophetic words in the scriptures and all the imagery pointing forward to his death, burial, and resurrection for the establishment of the kingdom. It also means that Jesus lived in line with all of the word of God in the way he was supposed to love others, in the way he was supposed to speak the truth, in the way he was supposed to serve others, the way he was supposed to walk was evident by looking at the word of God itself. He was obedient in all things. If we're going to look at Jesus and say he was without sin, it means that he obeyed the word of God in all things. And so he's fulfilling the law not just in his death, burial, and resurrection, although that is absolutely no small feat. In fact, I would say that's the capstone to everything that he did. But it also means that he fulfilled it in the way he walked and lived as well. But then we go to John chapter 6, verse 38. And Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, in the context of John 6, he gets a little more specific with what he means in the context of that discussion. But this generic statement here means that he came down to do the will of the Father, to obey and do what was right in the eyes of the Lord in all of his walk, all the way up to and beyond his death, burial, and resurrection. And then we get to the words of Paul in in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, in other words, because of Adam's disobedience and sin, The corruption of sin and the condemnation of death and the wrath of God is upon us all because of that. So by one man's obedience, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so ultimately his obedience leads to salvation so that we may be righteous and thereby we may obey and do what he has called us to do. And what he's called us to do is to represent him and his kingdom in obedience to the Lord. Now some of you may work for a company or have worked for a company where there's a a dress code or at the very least there's sort of a code of uh, colors or logos that you wear um, with your clothing. There's a particular company mission that you're supposed to memorize. You're supposed to talk about your products in a very particular way. Uh, If you're not a salesperson or someone out front working with that stuff, you might be on the assembly line, putting things together in a very particular way because the company says that's the way things are supposed to be put together with our company. We have a way of doing things, a way of talking about things, a way of representing what we do, right? Well, imagine one day someone walks in not wearing the company colors, not wearing the company logo, not handling the same company product, not trying to sell the same company line, not talking about the same mission statement, going back and working on the assembly line, trying to build products that the company doesn't build, you would instantly know that person doesn't work for that company, right? You would know they don't represent that company. Well, the same is the case for those of us who disobey the Word of God. In those instances, we fail and cease to represent the kingdom of God that we have been sent to represent. And so if we have any hope of representing the kingdom, we have to obey. But the problem is that we are sinners and bent toward not obeying. And so we have to look to the one who in his obedience has secured the ability to obey. 
So we come to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We just wrapped up our study in 1 Peter, and we go back here and we find again, we have been called to be a kingdom of priests. But instead of being a kingdom located in a specific location, in a specific time that's supposed to live in a particular way, to show the nations that we're different and therefore our God is different, so that we call on them to come and see, instead we are a cross-cultural, cross-national fellowship that exists in all nations. And instead of asking them to come and see, we're told to go and tell. And so because we've been called to do this, because the Great Commission tells us to go and make disciples, we are called to obey and go do that task. But we're only able to do it because of the obedience of Christ. He has secured our ability to be obedient and accomplish that task. But also we're told to teach them to observe all that He commanded. Why? Because in doing so, they will represent Him as well. Someone taught us to observe all that He commanded so that we would represent Christ well, right? The same thing is the case when we go and make disciples. We have to teach them to do those things which represent Christ well to make His kingdom known. So what does this all go to? How does this all work out? Well, the first place we go, the most basic, baseline way that we begin to live lives of obedience is to lean upon Christ. If He has been obedient, then we can be obedient. But how does that work? Well, it's a phrase that we've probably heard before, and that is to abide in Christ. John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to His disciples, and He says these things. And I am going to read the full length of this comment from verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now by abiding in them, excuse me, by, by his people abiding in Christ, they are able to bear fruit. And that fruit isn't just the fruit of good works, it is also the fruit of the work of the kingdom, of making him known, of making disciples, because of what he has done. Now abide is a word we don't use often, an equally valid translation for the word uh, that's used here is remain, to remain in Christ. And that looks very particular. J.C. Ryle has this great comment. He says, To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with Him, to be always leaning on Him, resting on Him, pouring out our hearts to Him, and using Him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have His words abiding in us is to keep His sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. 
It means going to the Lord, first of all, in prayer, spending time with Him, throwing ourselves upon His mercies and His grace to work through us. As we are in Him, He is able to work through us to accomplish His tasks, to throw our cares and concerns upon Him, that He might bear us up in the midst of it all, in the midst of our fears and struggles as we go through all of this. To be with Him, not only in prayer, but in His Word. To let His words sink deeply into our hearts, to spend time constantly in them, just as Joshua was called to do. That His words might abide in us. So we might see what right is in His eyes, so we might see what obedience looks like, and we'll see what He is like, that we might worship Him properly. Again, we at Faith Bible Church have been placed in this place, in the providence of God. In His sovereignty, He has brought us here to do the work of His kingdom. And if we have any hope of obeying and going and making His kingdom known, both in our already established relationships and the relationships we need to build here in this area of our community, then we have to trust in what He has done and abide in Him. To constantly be with Christ to constantly look to His strength that we might obey. To trust in His obedience that we might obey. We have to remain in Him and look to Him to accomplish the task because we cannot do it in and of ourselves. And this is what it means to trust in Him and to know that He is present because if we are in Him, if we remain in Him, we know that He is with us. And He has promised to be with us as we go to make Him known. So ultimately, to trust in Christ's obedience is again to abide or remain in Him in this way. And I should mention also as an important point of this, it's also being with His people. As Christ works through His people together in the fellowship, we speak to each other. We looked at this in 1 Peter. Then in the context of these spiritual discussions we have with one another, building one another up, encouraging one another, equipping one another, we are speaking the words of God to one another as He works through us. And so being in fellowship with one another is also another way that we can abide in Christ as He works through His people. And that's why these relationships in our community of our fellowship are so important that we spend time together in this way. And so, it's not just your own personal time with Christ to remain in Him, but it's also remaining in Him as you remain with His people as well. So again, to trust in Christ's obedience is to abide and remain in Him. All right, any questions or comments? All right, so again, the holy and faithful God we serve calls on His people to trust in His faithfulness in order to obey and represent His kingdom. And so as we go to the table today, we need to be honest with ourselves as we reflect on our own lives, on our own hearts, and realize the times when we have not believed in the faithfulness of our God that has then resulted in us turning from Him trying to do things our own way or flat out leading to disobedience and rebelliousness. 
not doing what we've been called to do to go and make Him known. Living lives that don't represent Him. And we need to be honest about the times when we have not seen Christ's obedience as sufficient for us to then be able to obey. And therefore we've turned from abiding in Him, from remaining in Him, and have neglected that to our detriment and to the detriments of others. We need to confess these things, repent of it, and seek forgiveness. But we also need to seek His grace in this time, to trust in His faithfulness to His people. He was faithful. The Father was faithful to Christ, and Christ in His faithful obedience has made it possible for us to likewise be faithfully obedient, to go and make Him and His kingdom known to the lost and dying. And so we need to pray for that grace to remain in Him and to trust in Him. And as always, we come to this table to celebrate what the Lord Jesus has done in His faithful obedience to make it possible for us to obey and bring glory to our God in His kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we do give You thanks and praise for what You've accomplished. Lord, we do confess that we have failed to trust in Your faithfulness. We have failed to believe that You are with us and therefore we have gone our own way, disobeyed, neglected the task You set before us. We failed to constantly go back to remain in Christ so that we might obey and again accomplish the task you set before us to make you known. And so, Lord, we come before you praying for your grace and your mercy that we might indeed full-heartedly trust in your faithfulness, trust in what you are doing, what you have accomplished through your Son. To trust in the obedience of Christ and what He has accomplished so that we might indeed remain in Him and bring glory to Your name through the proclamation of Your kingdom. We pray all this rejoicing and giving thanks in the blessed name of Jesus the Christ, our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Faith Pampa podcast. We hope that this message was an encouragement to you. For more information on Faith Bible Church, please visit www.faithpampa.org. Thank you.